Okay, a fascinating episode. I love the guests that we bring on the Ortho Show. We're always bringing on unique, amazing people. And uh, Adam Brueggemann is exactly that. He's an orthopedic spine surgeon in solo practice down in San Antonio, Texas. I mean, who's in solo practice anymore? He's the chief medical officer of three different companies. He's literally making the fro look bad as to how many different things he's doing compared to me. Just kidding. But the, the most profound thing that he's doing, he's the chair of the advocacy council for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, which means he goes to Washington, D.C. at least once a month advocating for patients and for orthopedic surgeons to improve the care that we're providing. He goes to the FDA and centers for, uh, for CMS. Just a remarkable, important position. He's doing great work on the planet. I know you're going to like this episode. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. It's always amazing to bring on amazing people within orthopedics and to share their stories. And today is absolutely no exception. We have Dr. Adam Brueggemann, who is an orthopedic surgeon, spine specialist out of the Texas Spine Center in San Antonio, Texas. He is in solo practice. I can't believe that spine surgeons on the planet are in solo practice. And we got so much to talk about, Adam. Really excited for today's uh, uh, visit. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. We're going to do a lot of good stuff. We always start in the beginning, though, and then I want to really get to some of the important stuff that you're doing outside of clinical practice, because it seems to me like you actually may be busier than I am, which is really almost unbelievable for our listeners. But let's start where it all began. We always start like, why are you an orthopedic surgeon? Where did it come from? Where'd you grow up? Are there doctors in the family? Give it to us. Sure. Yeah, no doctors in the family, uh, mostly no college graduates in the family. My parents were the first generation, first in their uh, families to um, graduate from college. I have a lot of pastors in my family, a lot of Lutheran pastors. I grew up in the Midwest in Omaha. Um, I uh, stayed in Omaha for my undergraduate degree. And when I was there, I got my, there was a new degree that came out called health administration and policy, brand new multi, uh, colleges went through the business college, the arts and sciences college, and the uh, director of it approached me and said, I think you'd enjoy this. So I, I went and got the degree. Uh, my university, Creighton university had a guaranteed acceptance to medical school provided you got a good grades and you didn't even have to take the MCATs actually. Um, and I ended up turning that down, which allowed me to, to go spend some time getting a master's and went and got my master's in hospital administration, uh, worked for HCA for a brief period of time, and then went back, reapplied to medical school, was accepted. And, uh, I gotta tell you, orthopedics really was because I played a lot of sports and played baseball my whole life growing up. And, um, I wanted to do that. My mentor ironically was a orthopedic surgeon, a guy who looked at me when I got hurt one time, he invited me into the operating room. He was also, his dad was the administrator of the hospital. So I got to see the administration side, just loved it and wanted to be with him. Uh, his name's James Kennedy. He's still a practicing orthopedic surgeon in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> but I do like the fact that you, you know, you took a little bit of a circuitous path to get back to medical school, taking some time out, which I think 
has really helped you in your pedigree, you know, later in, in your career outside of being an orthopedic surgeon, right? Because we're going to talk about it. You've got like three CMO gigs. You've got an advocacy thing that you're doing. You're down and you're like, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You're down there like every other day. So we're, we're going to talk about all that. But so it's interesting that your master's in hospital administration, I think, probably paid dividends for you later on. So then finally, um, you decide, OK, it is medical school, right? You decide you're going to do you're going to do this thing and you go to the University of Texas. South Center in San Antonio for your medical degree. Um, and then was it pretty much while you're in med school, you're like, okay, this is an orthopedic gig. This is what I'm going to do with fast track. Cause you took some time off at that point before there. Yeah. You know, I did um, my, my fourth year of medical school at the health science center here in San Antonio is largely an elective year. You can do whatever you really want to do. And I spent all of my time in orthopedics. I did sports. I did oncology. I did total joints and, I actually got to work a lot with Jesse DeLee, who uh, really spent a lot of time mentoring me. And he told me, you know, Adam, you're going to go to the University of Florida and go do orthopedics there. I said, okay, I guess that's well, what that, that was it. There was only one choice. Like there's a few other good residencies somewhere out there. He said that to me, you know, I'd applied and uh, I hadn't even applied to the University of Florida yet. Uh, didn't know a whole lot about the program. And um, I'm helping close a total knee replacement he had done with his fellow and he's on the phone in the in the operating room, and instead of dictating, he's on the phone with uh, uh, Dr. Peter Delicato, the sports doctor of yeah. Florida for for decades, uh, telling him, "Hey, I got this guy in here, and you're going to take him as a resident in your program, kind of thing." So that's how it all played out. You know how I mean? It's all about who you know, and in, in our it's world. about relationships, no matter what, especially in orthopedics. Was Kevin Farmer, when did, he, when did Kevin start? He started in the midst of your residency? Yeah, Kevin was our shoulder fellow when I was probably a third or fourth year resident. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I got to know Kevin really well, and we, we still He's talk. a hoot. <laughs> He's great. He's wonderful. Yeah, he, he fell into a great job, right? I mean, he sort of came in as a shoulder fellow, and next thing you know, and is ready to retire, and then bam, he's the orthopedic team physician his first year into practice at the University of Florida. What a cool gig. Yeah, he and he and Dr. Moser split duties, and then Dr. Moser kind of slowly turned over more and more of the uh, games to Kevin. Obviously, Kevin played baseball at Duke uh, yep. in undergrad, so he was really interested in being a part of the baseball team, um, and has obviously always covered their sports. But then slowly picked up football and basketball. I think basketball first, then football, and and now he pretty much does everything there. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. We just had Kevin on at OSET. We haven't published the story yet, but we'll have to get it out there. All right. So what happens? All of a sudden you're like, all right, you're you're like a super cool dude like the rest of us sports guys. And you take a left-hand turn and it's gonna be spine. Where where did that come from? What was the deal there? You know, I I uh during my fourth year getting a ro rotations through all the different specialties, I, I don't know, I really got attracted to spine. I think it was the Probably all of the unknown factors of spine, right? What's the right approach? What's the right surgery to do? When do you do the, when do you do decompression? When do you do a fusion? When do you do disc replacements? Do those make sense? And I think all of that uncertainty within the field is what attracted me to it. I, um, I enjoyed that and I enjoyed the variety that was there. And I worked with some really good private practice orthopedic surgeons. It was a group of 12 surgeons. They owned their own hospital uh, and, and seeing that private practice model before I ever saw it at the academic level, I think is what really made me excited about spine. And I was pretty dedicated to doing spine from the day I started orthopedics. So you stuck around in San Antonio and you did your spine fellowship there. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so I went to University of Florida for the five years residence. Oh, that's right. You came back to San Antonio. Yep. My bad. I apologize. I yep. came back. Yeah, came back for a year, did my fellowship with that private practice group. Uh, they they were doing a fellowship uh, one every year for several years in a row and then, and then closed it down two years after I finished. But uh, it was a great program. One month with every doctor, a uh, chance to see 12 different ways to operate on the spine. And that was really just a, a unique experience. Yeah, it's so, you know, indications are so important for spine surgery. I'm like, you know, you can't, you just can't operate on everybody that walks in the door and expecting good, good results. So you got to be super picky as to what you're going to do. So, so good for you. But this is a little crazy story, right? Like, all right, you're fresh out of fellowship, right? And you're you're going to stay. I'm assuming you stay in Texas. Did you join the same group that you did the fellowship with for a year? I did. Yep, I joined them for a year on a salary guarantee for the first year. I think it was good, but I I um, was the kind of practice was a lot focused on that physician-owned hospital. That was really the large revenue driver, and what brought twelve people who were should have been competitors with each other to the table to talk about things was this common ownership in this facility which I did not have ownership in. And so it quickly became apparent to me that it was probably not the right practice for me. Um, and I, with my background, felt comfortable and confident in starting my own practice. And so after that first year, I went into solo practice uh, and that's where I've been for now. Right, so, right, so let's roll the bean footage backwards here for a little bit. I mean, like, it's not like you're 33, you're, no, you're a little older, right? Cause you took some time. So maybe you're 35, 36, something in there. And you're like going to go start a practice. I mean, what does that mean? I'm like, you got to have an office. You got to have staff. You got to have money in the bank. You got to spend money to be able to open a practice. Did you get a loan? I mean, talk, how did that happen? Roll us on through that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've used a bank. I got a great relationship, same bank I'm still with today. Um, you know, the one thing I would say for, for people who are looking at this business wise, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's medicine or not, you know, I, I appreciate the large banks in the world, but there's, there's nothing like local banks who understand you and you can do work on a handshake. And that, that really was it. They, they knew that I could do something. I think I, I don't know that I would have been as successful without knowing my bankers, on a first name basis. And, um, they, they were willing to help me fund. I, I got a, um, consultant who helped me understand how to, all the things I would need you know, from health insurance to, uh, getting sharps disposal to, uh, you know, getting my rent set up and what I should be paying my staff. I mean, all that stuff is very foreign to us in practice until you've been in it for a little while. So, he certainly helped me understand that. We knew what my volume looked like over the last year. So I knew what my volume would look like going forward. And we could kind of plan on staffing and locations and keep my expenses to a minimum while I built the practice. All right. So it's interesting because we'll talk a little bit because your team's grown for sure. I checked out your website today. But all right. So you have to be exceptionally good to be a solo spine surgeon, right? Because by definition, you don't have anybody helping you either to assist in the operating room as a surgeon, but how about taking your call? Like, are you, were you on every single night, you know, when you first started out? Yeah. So it's interesting. So, so trauma call interestingly is um, in this community is all neurosurgeons. So they have combined in every hospital uh, intracranial call with spine call. So I was really not capable or able to take any call uh, unless I wanted to go back and do general orthopedic call, which I was not interested in doing. 
Uh, as far as covering my own patients, it's interesting that when you get into your practice, you know your patients so well. And I found when I was covering 12 other surgeons, I didn't know their practices as well. And it was really difficult to round on 12 other surgeons' practices, uh, take phone calls on the weekends, trying to catch up on what was going on, what was the patient really asking for. So I actually found it to be really easy. I, I would say on average in my practice, I was getting maybe one phone call every other week. Uh, from a patient for a concern or worry after hours. Otherwise, most issues got handled um, you know, during normal business hours. Uh, but I did have to arrange for call when I went out of town, just like I do today with other spine surgeons in the community. We do have a handful of other either small practice or single practitioner spine surgeons that I can cool. network with and, and cover when I'm out of town. And you do the same for them on the backside when they want to go out of town as well. Was, doc was, right. doc was Dr. Death down there with you guys? No, so he was. Uh, so he trained in Memphis, and then he was in Dallas. He was in Dallas. Uh, okay. God, that was. I, I could. I could not listen. I mean, I literally was ready to throw up every episode as I was listening, and I, it was just so bad. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> so, but your practice has done really well, and I went live. You've got like, you've got like eight or nine people working for you now, which is awesome. And you, and you, you know, you've got office people, you've got, you know, nurses, staff, you got nurse practitioners, but you're, and you're focused on that. So the practice must be thriving and doing great. Yeah. I don't know our total number of office employees at this point. I, you know, um, I've expanded, I think, I think you probably saw, I, I got boarded in addiction medicine specific because of the opioid crisis and because of how bad it is in spine um, and I started an opioid treatment center that's outpatient that helps patients who are in spine in the spine world um, get off of their opioids instead of taking them long term, either pre or post surgery or no surgery whatsoever. And so I've got a team that does that. Uh, and then we also started in conjunction with that a preoperative clearance program that looks at more than just um, more than just clearing a patient for their heart and lungs, but thinking about mental health thinking about opioids, thinking about all these issues. Nutrition, right? Nutrition, super important for spine surgery, big time front and back cases. Got to make sure the albumin is good. You got to make sure they're getting their essential amino acids and all that good stuff to make sure they come out good. But that's, so that's a great, great transition for you there. So, you know, um, I always say, you know, people make fun of me now that orthopedic surgery is my side hustle. Uh, but, you know, I do a lot of things that I'm passionate about. And, and really, I want to thank you for your efforts within the opioid space to be able to, because in the, in the back, you know, population, patients with back pain, it's really truly epidemic as far as how these patients have been managed previously with opioids. So thank you very much for all of your efforts in that regard. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's fun, right? You know, I, I met you at Becker's, you were on a panel with Mike Redler and you started you spewing off all of this advocacy stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy's got a lot going on. We got to get him on the show. But you're also, we're going to get there in a minute, but you also, you know, do some chief medical officer stuff. So you're an entrepreneur, you're involved in a, a number of different companies. Let's talk a little bit about, about that because I think that's always fun the ai skeletal diagnostic imaging group that you've got what's that all yeah, about mski um has been kind of operating in the shadows lately but it, it ties a little bit into the advocacy piece of it as i think many people are aware united healthcare came out in 2020 with an attempt to make us upload our imaging prior to getting surgeries approved uh, they backed off largely because it was horrible timing right it was literally months after the pandemic hit horrible horrible timing for united healthcare to try and increase so let's, let's make sure that the surgeons can operate because we've already got a huge backlog of patients that need surgery let, let's make it worse let's make sure we take the money in but we don't spend any of the money 
Right, exactly. So uh, um, I think their intent was really just that uh, perhaps the reading of imaging is not as unbiased as they originally thought it was. And so can we use artificial intelligence to call balls and strikes fairly the way the average orthopedic surgeon in a community would call things? And so uh, MSKI is putting together a process to read first spine, then working into orthopedics and you know, if we're going to be forced to utilize these systems, I would rather have it be uh, read by orthopedic surgeons than read by a nurse who works for an insurance company or someone who's a pediatrician that works for an orthopedic sur- uh, works for an insurance company uh, when we upload our images. Very PC. I, I'm okay with that because I mean, I think you're in advocacy, which is fine. I'll be the guy that's sort of because I'm not working with these people, so they people can yell at me if they want. I think AI is going to make a, a major move into healthcare as we move forward here, right? There's so many things that we do uh, that really don't require us, right? And it would be great to be able to, to utilize that. So kudos to you for being on the, involved in that. So I'm assuming the NPower Healthcare, is that the clinical services thing that you were talking about as far as the patient evaluation prior to surgery? Is that a different gig? Yeah, it's totally different. Pre-op center is part of my practice that we, we clear patients. We clear about 200 patients, and that's for people in our community in San Antonio, um, but Empower is a uh, clinically integrated network, tries to bring doctors together like myself and others for the purposes of um, dealing with future models, accountable care organizations, value-based care models, um, being able to share data on what's best practices, and hopefully be able to contract as well in those in those models or in traditional fee-for-service. So um, clinically integrated network is a way to band together as physicians without banding together under one tax ID number. And that's essentially what they do as their organization. Interesting, right? So it's like a, it's a variant of, you know, private equity coming in and the private equity platforms that are, you know, developing partnerships. This allows independence for the doctors, but still brings a bunch of people together to develop best practices. Always a great idea, you know, for sure. And then there's a third, which is the, the, Physician Surgical Networks affiliate as well. Are you still doing work with them as well? Yeah, PSN is a 14-facility uh, healthcare system in Texas. So my background working you know, in health administration health policy prior to doing medicine, um, I got asked by the healthcare system to be their CMO for their system. Um, we're mostly ASCs with a handful of hospitals, some of which are physician-owned and pre-2010, so they take Medicare. Some are physician-owned post-2010, so they don't take any federal funds. And then, obviously, the majority of which are AFCs, which are which are um, significantly majority-owned by the physicians. Um, and it's an expanding market that just opened one in Florida, the Miami area, um, and a growing group of um, physicians. All right, so complete underachiever, solar practitioner in spine surgery. CMO for three separate organizations, plus running a couple of extra little gigs off to the side of your practice. And there's one more thing that I want to talk about, because that's the thing that's really sort of hit for me as we were at Becker's together last year. I'm assuming I'm going to see him Becker's uh, in a couple of weeks. You going? Of course. Excellent. I'm looking forward to your talks again. I'll be there as well. And, uh, you know, I was just like, wow, this guy is like you know, he understands what's happening with CMS and and the House of Representatives and Congress. So you're the chair, Council on Advocacy for the American Academy of Big Surgery, which is a really important job, right? I mean, you're there as the leader 
to to meet with our you know congressmen, the regulatory bodies, to make sure that our voice is heard when they want to give us a pay cut or whatever the next thing is that's coming down. And it ain't easy. I mean, you know, I'm an opioid sparing guy, and for ten years I was a part of lobbying for the No Pain Act before it was the No Pain Act, really trying to establish, you know, advocacy for opioid sparing options. And I went a bunch of times and it's a lot of hard work and you, you're talking to people and more often than not, things aren't getting done. So tell us about that. It must be a really remarkable experience. It is. First of all, thanks for your work on No Pain Act. As you know, the, the latest iteration of the No Pain Act was finally passed. And I think that's a huge help for our patients, first and foremost, and then physicians to choose what they want to do for patients. So I appreciate your help on that. Yeah, so our advocacy council at a very high level oversees what we do in what we call our Office of Government Relations for Orthopedics and um, all the things you said. So that's you know dealing with Congress, that's raising money for our political action committee, and that is uh, dealing with the regulatory bodies like Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or the FDA for regulating um, biologics or implants that we use. And so we become that voice and that channel uh, and develop those relationships in D.C. so that our surgeons can have a voice when they need a voice, when we need something changed, we need uh, things to shake and move in, in the right direction. Um, I took over in February. Uh, so I feel very young in the role. It's a two two year term, so probably a, a total of four years back and forth to DC. I'm trying to get out there at least every other month to meet with members of Congress and in between have meetings with our team. But it takes a village to do this. Um, it's a lot of work, and we are certainly we just had over 300 orthopedic surgeons come to DC and talk with members of Congress. We met with over half of the members of Congress in one day. And so that's just a really impressive amount of outpouring of support from our our colleagues to who are more engaged now than they ever have been before due to some of the pressures financially on physician practices combined with inflation. All right, Anna, can you can you read that? I'm nominating you for Speaker of the House. What do you think? <laughs> you don't actually have to be. You don't have to actually. They'll take it. They're going to try and get Trump. I'd much rather have you. What do you think? Oh man, I you know they had a vote today. I haven't paid a whole lot of attention after the first vote. Yeah. It sounds like we we, just, we still don't have a speaker. Uh, but my goodness, um, we really need to get some work done in in Congress. And whoever that is, that's the speaker. We look forward to working with them. I, uh, I I I hope that we can get this done sooner than later. We've got a lot of stuff going on. They got to get this stuff figured out. But we won't go political here. Uh, I got a couple more questions that I want to ask you, and it really relates to advocacy. And so remember, as I said, my mother Judy's listening. So, you know, so from the from since your time now in February, give us like a couple bullet points that are really important for patients to know what we're advocating for as orthopedic surgeons in Washington, DC. Yeah, I, I think the big the big umbrella of what we're looking at and what people are concerned about in healthcare is this concept of consolidation. I know on the the show, you've had a lot of talks about how practices are consolidating, but it's not just practices, it's hospitals, it's healthcare systems. And um, while consolidation theoretically could lead to lower prices, right? If your local grocery store is able to buy at a lower price, it can hopefully pass that on to you if it has more locations and more, more influence. Unfortunately, in healthcare, the numbers have not worked out that it's benefited patients or your employers um, when healthcare systems have consolidated. And 
what we are working on at a high level is trying to ensure that physicians can maintain private practices like you and I have. And in order to do that, we have to make financial systems that make sense. We've got to pay doctors enough money to pay their bills and it's got to go up with inflation. That seems like a common sense thing, but the reality of it is, is that physicians get paid less money every year, even when inflation goes up. Um, and the other reality of it is, is that we struggle to be able to own every aspect of our practice, all the various things that we touch, the ability to own and run hospitals, all of those restrictions that we're working on are in an effort to try and make sure that, that patients have complete access because there may come a day when physicians decide that it's not worth it to take certain health insurance products like Medicare, and that will significantly impact all of our plans. We all hope, hope to be able to utilize Medicare as some sort of federal insurance at the end of our lives when we're no longer employed by someone. And that needs to have meaning. It needs to have a network. It needs to have doctors you can see readily and available that are available to you at a reasonable price. So the advocacy that you're doing, which is quite fascinating for orthopedic surgeons, it also sort of trickles down to, to being, you know, great care for patients as well. And it just is so remarkable. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years at this point, and I, I routinely say this, right? We can't work any harder. It's, I can't press any more buttons. I don't understand, you know, why I have to make seven phone calls to get an appropriate surgery, you know, scheduled for surgery. Why insurance companies want to pay me less for providing great care to my patients, right? So the hard work that you're doing to create advocacy for the surgeons really parallels very nicely to really hopefully providing great care for our patients as well and letting our patients know, you know, that, you know, we're hardworking people too, man. We got jobs, we got people that work for us and we need to make a living. We need to be able to provide great care. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. One thing that really hurts patients is, and, and maybe they, they don't realize is that we would love to take them to the operating room the next day for a surgery that we know they need, but there's a whole process that's designed to slow that down and make it difficult to happen. And that's not the fault of the, your doctor. It's not the fault of the people who work for your doctor. Don't get angry at them. They're working really, really hard behind the scenes to ensure that that surgery gets done or that treatment gets done or that injection gets approved. Uh, and that's a lot of work and a lot of people that we spend. I, I, there's a group here in town, San Antonio Orthopedic Group, large, uh, over 30 orthopedic surgeon group that spends over a half a million dollars a year just on the process of getting patients uh, surgeries and procedures and physical therapy and MRIs approved every year. That's just crazy. What, what you, wasn't there one of the insurance companies that just got, got caught hiring doctors specifically to basically say no to referrals. Am I wrong on that? Can we talk about that? Yeah. That, it gets you in trouble if it's something that you can't no. talk about. It's something we can certainly talk about. So most insurance companies uh, used to have internal systems where they would approve or deny care, largely run by nurses because they were cheaper than hiring the doctors. But if we got to a scenario where the doctor, like myself or you, disagreed with that nurse that worked for the insurance company. We could talk to a doctor, and they would employ some doctors to do that for them. Now, uh, there are third parties that intercede on behalf of the insurance company, and their pitch to the insurance company is, we'll do a better job enforcing your rules than you do, basically saying, we'll deny more care than you deny, and that justifies why you would pay us a fee to be this intermediary for you. And 
essentially every insurance company has these intermediaries now that are basically designed to deny care that surgeons or doctors recommend for their patients. You and I are talking about as far as surgery goes, but actually the number one issue is medications. Patients are getting their medications denied every day that are being written by their doctors. This has been a great episode. I knew it would be because it's really practical, right? For for everyone that listens across the board, whether you're an Uber driver, Judy, or an orthopedic surgeon trying to figure out, you know, what the best plan of action is. I mean, I can't thank you enough for all of the extra energy and effort that you put in into all of the things outside of your solo practice, your passion for opioid sparing and being able to help your patients in the local community and advocacy, you know, down in Washington, DC, which is one of the most difficult places to get things done, but you're there with a smile and you keep going back. And I'm really confident with you leading this advocacy group, we're going to really see some great changes. So look, I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to come and share with our listeners here at the Ortho Show. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. I uh, look forward to seeing you at Becker's in about two weeks in October. How's that sound? That's right. We'll see you there. All right. Sound fantastic. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.